0: Well, you know it's funny. We we normally we record the podcast um, in, a, in a basement studio, Ryan's Ryan's basement studio, and we we've been doing that for years. And of course, since COVID, we've all been doing the Zoom thing, mm-hmm. and we've we still haven't really worked out all the technical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like I spend half my days on Zoom at this point. Yeah. just sometimes they're recorded, sometimes they're not, but it's always talking into a computer in some way. <sighs>
0: Yes, it's true. So forgive us if uh, if, if this whole thing implodes.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show.
0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter.
3: Banter, banter.
0: My name is Rob Minot. and joining me, as per usual, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello again. And Mr. Steve Barkley. Heya. How the heck are you boys today? You know, I'm doing well. Been a quiet day, yes. though.
3: Scale, scale of 1 to 10, I'm probably at least a 4. Wow.
0: A 4. Yikes. Yikes. That's not good. <laughs>
3: well, you know better than the three
0: damn it's been a slow summer it you know. has been uh you know i was checking i was checking some of the sites for news and stuff and they're just not a lot is happening right now and i don't know if it's if it's just summertime and the news cycle slows down or if uh it's covid and that's just really sort of slowed everything else down but there is just not a heck of a lot happening in the world of accessibility or assistive technology these days, I find.
3: Well, so many companies have been, you know, either shuttered or, or, um, you know, greatly reduced their, uh, their working hours. So, you know, I don't think there's certainly much in the way that, of product that's new that's being developed and no. released right now.
0: No, everybody else has, everybody has bigger fish to fry, I guess.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Keeping people employed.
0: Yeah, and alive.
2: And alive. <laughs> the only thing I saw today was IRA, the service blind and visually impaired people can use to call an agent and get sighted assistance using their cell phone has changed their plans or is revamping the way they do their five minute free call plans. It used to be that you know, any of us who were blind and visually impaired could call an IRA explorer, explorer. And have five minutes free, even if you weren't a subscriber to any of their other plans, and get assistance. But their CEO released an announcement yesterday saying that about 51%, I think, or 55% of users were taking advantage of the free five-minute phone calls. And it doing that wasn't a viable financial business plan going forward. Mm. So that has been terminated. Yeah. So that's been terminated. But what they're, <laughs> what they are doing is you can still make a five minute free phone call, but you have to wait 24 hours before you make your second five minute free phone call. huh. Now, if you're a subscriber, you can still make a five minute free phone call and then you can make your second one within or after four hours. So I if see. you're a subscriber, you know, they've got some benefits there for you. Um, if you're not, you can still do your five minute call. But, you know we also have other options like be my eyes as well right so um that does the same thing
0: you know i think that that was probably the plan all along i think that that whole free five minutes for for everybody was they just you know that was sort of a a plan to get people onto the service using the service and then wanting to subscribe i think they always knew that that was something that they would only be offering for a limited time only and that it wasn't necessarily sustainable. Yeah, it wanted it to really expand their reach, and it probably worked. To be honest,
2: absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of people like they said in in the letter that went out to everyone. You know, like I said, 51 or 55 percent of their users were that five-minute free phone call, right, to do a quick task.
3: Well, I I do actually have some news now that I think about it. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, the uh, Typing Tutor Typeo from Accessibyte,
0: Mm -hmm.
3: they have just announced that they are going to support Braille mode. So you'll be able to use a keyboard and use the home row keys, the SDF and the uh, JKL, and you'll be able to do Braille input in the Typeo Typing Tutor.
2: What would be really cool as well is if you could use like a focus display or a cube braille or something else that will also allow you to do Braille input um, and use Typeo that way as well, but using your Braille display as the keyboard. like your six key Perkins key?
3: I bet it would. I bet it would. I, I think that would I think that would probably work just by default because uh, if you're using a screen reader with a, uh, uh, with a Braille display, uh, it's going to pass those keys as characters anyways when you type. But, um, but this, Typeio doesn't require a screen reader at all. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a subscription service, and uh, you can access it through, uh, uh, through a browser on a computer, whether it be Mac or PC. You can do it on Chromebooks. You can do it on phones. You can do it on anything, pretty much, as long as it's got a web browser. So a pretty powerful tool for, for letting somebody practice without having to invest a whole bunch of money.
2: And we shall put a link to that in the show notes. We shall, shall we? We are shall you in charge indeed. Of the show notes
0: now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I want some power.
0: Very cool. Well, so so there are things happening out there in the in the world. Just but, not a lot. Hey Ryan. Rob. What the heck are we doing today?
2: Today we are speaking with technology journalist, podcaster, and author, Shelley Brisbane.
0: Um, yeah, this uh she has, she has done so much and has been in the industry for so long that uh, her bio is literally the length of my arm. Longer. I have long arms. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. She's, um, yeah, she's been writing um, assistive technology articles. She's an author. She's a blogger. She's a podcaster. I don't know if there's anything in this field that she hasn't done.
2: Well, we'll have to ask her that.
0: And now, what podcast has she appeared on?
2: She has her own called Parallel, and she has another one that she's host of called Mac. I get this one messed up all the time. Mac Accessibility, and it's all about the Mac.
0: Yeah, and she's. It sounds like she's very, very Apple, Apple heavy in terms of. I think what she uses personally, as well as what she writes about. So uh, that's going to be really interesting to get somebody with a, a bit of an, a more of an Apple perspective than we're used to.
2: Boo, Apple. What do you mean, Boo, Apple? You have <laughs> an Apple you've I've got multiple Apple devices.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's, what's
2: with that? Okay, Boo, Apple Accessibility Team. <laughs> oh, you're, you're right.
0: Just start <laughs> that, right. I forgot about that.
2: That's right. No, I'm not going to get over that, Steve.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, so that is going to be cool. We're going to be talking to Shelly a little bit later, but what else are we going to be doing, Ryan?
2: We are going to be finally, finally doing a draw for the Mano AT Banter Hockey Jersey. Ooh. Yes, indeed. People have been waiting.
0: Getting stuff. It's the big number two. That's right. That's right. I've been wearing it for three weeks and I haven't <laughs> washed it, everybody. So get ready.
2: You got the Minot stink.
0: <laughs> you got the minnow stink on you. Well, that's a lot to look forward to in just one show, everybody. This is gonna be well worth your price of admission. I can hear Steve furiously working in the background, preparing I'm crinkling
3: the- things. Oh, I'm 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 done.
0: <laughs> thousands of pieces of paper into a hat. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll take the top three. Maybe we'll we'll make sure that the top three get taken care of. You figure? Yeah. Why not? Why? Yeah,
3: okay. Why don't we Why don't we do one draw for the uh, jersey and two draws for cowbells? It's a deal. Done deal. All right.
0: Fellas, if that is all uh, the banter and the news that we have, um, I say we just go ahead and uh, launch into talking to Shelly.
2: Let's do it. I've been looking forward to the show.
3: Hi, everyone. This is Steve from Canadian Assistive Technologies, and this is a shameless plug. A few years back, everyone was all excited about the pen friend from RNIB, which allowed folks to use small stickers with a chip in them to label products and record descriptions. We are pleased to be Canada's distributor of way products, which do the same thing, but utilize a cell phone as the reader. There are a variety of available tags, from simple stickers to clothing buttons, magnets, clips. There's something to label almost everything. The descriptions you enter can be any length, and they are automatically backed up to your account on the web, so no matter what happens, you'll never lose your descriptions. Check them out on our website at www.canastech.com.
2: Joining us now is Shelly Brisbane. Hello. Hi. How are you?
1: I'm well. How are you?
2: Doing well. Thank you. Shelly, I am Ryan Flurry, and joining me, as usual, is Steve Barclay.
3: Hello there.
2: And Rob Minot. Hello.
1: Hi, hi, and hi. <laughs> Don't don't ask me to uh, quickly identify whose voice is who because it'll take me like five ten minutes and then I'll get it. But it's it's
0: totally okay. We're we're all interchangeable pretty much.
1: Hey, you guy on the left. Exactly. <laughs> That's not helpful either.
0: <laughs> Hair. Oh wait, that doesn't help you. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, listen. Th- we want to really thank you so much for taking some time out and talking to us. We're really excited to talk to you. Actually. Um, you have been around uh, a long time. We're biting at the bit to get your take on a few things.
1: All right. Well, thanks for having me. So before we launch into
0: that, though, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you in initially into to being a, an advocate for assistive technology and, and writing so much about accessibility?
1: So my background is a is as a technology journalist in mostly the mainstream world. And I'm low vision, but I have managed to carve out a career writing about tech in magazines and in books for a long time on the mainstream side. And frankly, sort of a couple of things came together a number of years ago, one of which is that I felt like I had never really talked about or written about accessibility, even though I was using it every day. And I felt like there was this whole... There's this whole sort of segment of knowledge out there that that people that I was in contact with in the mainstream every day didn't have any clue about. Everybody thought accessibility was a great idea, but what does it even mean? And most people didn't know or seem to care. And so I wanted to bring my own experience into being able to tell people about it and also needed to learn something about it because I had only used accessibility in the way I used it and not in the way somebody who's totally blind or somebody who's a wheelchair user or, or any other kind of uh, disability condition might use it. And so I decided I wanted to, to learn about it. And the second thing was, frankly, I had been writing a lot of books back when books were mostly on paper for the mainstream market. And that kind of dried up. There wasn't really as much opportunity to write tech books as there used to be because partly of the web and partly because things were going more and more online, even as recently as, you know, eight or ten years ago. And so those things kind of came together. And so my first accessibility project, as it were, because why not go big, was to do a book about iOS accessibility. I've been using Apple products for many years and iOS for, I think, three or four years by that time. And nobody had, I, I just saw that there was like this gap, like nobody had written about or talked about accessibility for iOS, even though it existed. And so in the process of teaching myself more about it and sort of figuring out was there a market for this thing I wanted to write I got to meet a lot of people in the AT world and be on their podcasts and write for their websites and just get to know them and so all of a sudden and very happily so I found myself like part of this community that I had been almost not completely but almost unaware of until then.
0: When you were doing the research for the iOS accessibility book did it kind of surprise you at the time that nothing like that existed
1: it did, um because what I found was a lot of web sites and even a couple of books, maybe, that were outdated. And so it's like once accessibility came to iOS essentially in two thousand nine, people tried to document it. And it was organizations that did rehab, you know, rehab organizations and other organizations that had something to do with assistive technology. But it was like they did it once and then they never updated it. And, as you know, if you have any history with iOS, like the first iteration of voiceover was nice, but a lot happened even a year later. And so I found all this old, you know, it's like finding shipwrecks online. It's like old and dark and kind of scary. And I was like, really? Is it is it really this wide open? Maybe I need to do another Google search. There must be something out there that I don't know anything about. And there really wasn't. And so I I was super surprised. and. It's, uh, it's one of those, you know, opportunities that entrepreneurial people, and I've never really been one of those, always talk about, well, there was just nothing there, so I decided to make something. And so I feel like this is like the one time in my life where I <laughs> I get to say that.
2: Well, and with so many updates to iOS and so many revisions you have to make to this book, what is kind of your, your process of keeping it up to date? You know, especially we know with iOS 13, you know, we're on... now, do you revise it for all these minor updates or do you just focus on the major updates?
1: I do the major ones um, because the minor ones, it would just be too much. And especially the way I distribute it online, every time a minor update came out, not only would I have to make that update, but I would have to send everybody new books. Right. And they would have to replace it in their libraries and this whole thing. So I've done one update since thirteen came out, it's 13, I did a 13.4 update. And I suppose if I were really doing a full service project, I would keep a website and talk about updates in that form. But to be honest, I just don't have the time for that. And (laughs) if I if I did, if this was the only project I had going on, if it was my living, uh, you know, I, I might be might be better about that. But on the other hand, there is so much information online that I think people can find those updates that they need, the people who are really looking for them. I mean, most of the people who buy this book are probably not even thinking about, oh, 13.6 or 13.6.1, right. which one? You know, it's only <laughs> some some small percentage of the folks who are really paying that much attention. And those people probably have already figured out what they need as far as updates and know what websites to go to and know how to re- release notes and all those kinds of things. So that's the way I justify only doing an occasional update. But the commitment I do make to people is that if I do update between major releases, those minor updates are, are free. I'm not gonna say, oh, well, 13.4 came out, Char- pay me $5. You know, I, I sent that out free to people and I feel like that's like keeping my promise, but at the same time, not overworking myself in the course of a year.
2: So are you also on the public beta program then so that you can kind of see the features that are coming to the next version?
1: Yeah, and that's the funny thing about iOS, because even though updates are frequent, they are quite predictable. And even in this pandemic year, when we're not sure quite when new phones are going to be announced or released, uh, we know, I I call this book season. So between WWDC and the release of iOS is when I'm always working on my update for the book. And book season, what it means to me and those in my life is, Shelly's going to be a little frazzled because there's so many things to work on. And so I get the betas as soon as I can. I update my existing outline of the book. I decide whether I'm going to add or rearrange any major sections or chapters, which I did a couple of, which I did for iOS 13, because iPad OS was a thing. And so I added a chapter for that. And so I I should be further along than I am right now, but (laughs) I do go through the beta. I work with it. I have actually put it on my phone, which is probably the bravest thing I've done. I, I usually have it on an iPad that I don't care so much about but because there are a couple features that are specific to the phone I needed to put on the phone and, and mostly that's worked out because it's a pretty good beta cycle I almost went out and bought an iPhone SE 2 just so I could you know test and then I would have you know been hey look a spare phone how nice wow. uh, but yeah so so this is like busy time for me and the struggle too is that when even when iOS 14 is released there are probably going to be changes from the beta, even even stuff like where things are in settings. So I'll say, go to accessibility slash voiceover slash whatever. Well, they might've moved that. <laughs> and so I have to wait for the release to make sure that all my many, 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 many step-by-steps in the book are still accurate. And I have been burned a couple of times on that.
0: So now you also produced a audio documentary uh, called 36 Seconds, uh, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how that
1: came about? So Apple announced iOS uh, for initial iPhone OS and the iPhone in 2007. It was not accessible. In 2009, with the 3GS and with iPhone 3.0, it became accessible. We had voiceover. I felt like that was a story. I mean, for everybody I've ever talked to who's blind and even some people who are have some other disabilities, low vision folks, blind folks. That was a huge milestone because, I mean, I personally, like I said, even though I'm low vision, I personally couldn't use the iPhone for the first two years it was available. And so as, as an Apple follower and writer and all that stuff, that was just heartbreaking to me. And I I know so many people who now really live and breathe by their iOS devices and they love them. And so whenever I had a conversation with them, they talk about that period, that 2009 period when iOS became accessible and how big a deal it was. And and like I say, I live in two worlds. I live in this mainstream world and this accessibility world, and the people in the mainstream world, I, they, they would say things like, well, you know, iOS 3.0, that was, that was kind of a nice update. And then they did some other things. And I was like, wait a minute, you don't understand. This update really did change people's lives, which yeah. is a phrase I hate to use in association with accessibility because it's it's like a, it's a, it's a shark, it's a thing that people say who don't <laughs> actually know very much about accessibility. Uh, but I felt like it was true. And I wanted to find a way to explain that. And I'm a radio producer, I'm a podcaster. And so I thought, well, I'll just do what I, I, I do what I'll do. I do, I will do I'm a radio producer and a podcaster, and so I'll just do what I do. I will go and make some audio. And I could interview five or six people and put them on a podcast and say, hey, what do you think about this voiceover thing? Or I could tell the story exactly the way I wanted to tell it, and I did. And the, the title comes from the fact that when voiceover and the other accessibility features came to the iPhone it was at the very end of a long, long presentation <laughs> at a WWDC in 2009. And Phil Schiller comes up and he says, so there's a compass and there's also accessibility. And he sort of did a couple of ham handed phrases showing a setting screen and, oh, here's voiceover, here's mono audio, here are these things. And it took 36 seconds from the time the screen shot flipped to accessibility to the time and they moved on to something else. And so it was both revolutionary and amazing. And also like, wait, what? Is that all there is? There's no demo, there's no, you know, anyway. So I got, I got a little activist in that point. I was just like, <laughs> you guys, come on. And so I felt like a lot of people didn't know this story that needed to hear it, whether they were in the accessibility world or whether they weren't. And a lot of people who had had that experience of just being blown away and having their lives affected in a transformative fashion needed validation that, wait, is it just me? Or was that an amazing thing that happened?
0: So do you see that those 36 seconds um, to be sort of one of the most pivotal moments in accessibility and assistive technology in in recent memory?
1: I do. And one of the most important reasons is because it was accessibility that was applied to a mainstream device. And there's so many great things that have happened in accessibility tech or even in mainstream device tech since, but that was one where there was like this this overlay of not only just, okay, it's accessible, it'll talk to you, but it was good at it. It it was not just sort of a slapdash feature. And I think people who used Microsoft Narrator back then or other uh, built-in operating system-based accessibility tools struggled with them. And this was a, even though VoiceOver got a lot of improvements over the years, over the first release, right out of the box. And as my somebody in the documentary said, on the way home from the Apple store, I turned voiceover on and all of a sudden I can access this thing. So yeah, it's absolutely pivotal. And the weird part is, I think Apple understood that, but they didn't have the guts to share that with their mainstream audience or the language to explain how important it was. But I think certain sets of people within Apple, certainly the accessibility team, but anybody who had been trying to make accessibility on iOS and Mac OS important probably got what that meant.
0: Well, and it was so important because, you know, up to then, um, and we've, you know, the three of us, we've been in assistive technology since, well, I mean, I've, I've been involved since 2002 and Steve has, you know, even farther back than that. Nineteen ninety, uh, yeah. So I mean, we uh, you know we all remember like things like you know trying to install add-on programs onto things like those Nokia flip phones. Yeah,
2: Talk to the Mobile Speak. Yeah.
1: Yeah, which we talk about a little bit in the documentary, mm-hmm. and that was great because I didn't personally use those tools, but unprompted, my, my, I did a lot of interviews, and unprompted, a lot of people talked about those. Uh, mobile speak and talks and they talked about the good and the bad they talked about well it was designed for us therefore it focused on our needs and you could talk to the developers and you could get them to make changes if they needed to and on the downside it was expensive and it was clunky and oh by the way it's not a smartphone it's just you know access to a flip phone
2: right
0: smartphones in general it uh, like it was such a leap forward technologically but that inclusion, um, that that baked in accessibility, they were really the first company to really embrace that and to really lean into it. Um, and I think that we're still really feeling the effects of that um, years and years later.
1: Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, there's again, the, the documentary sort of goes through some of the history of how that happened. Both, sort of, the positive of Apple stepping up and doing it and the more business oriented reasons, which had to do with Apple had to make up ground because, on the computer side, they were there, there was a period where they were very inaccessible, and then they. Had to become accessible because they wanted to get school contracts, and you couldn't get school contracts if you didn't have a solution for blind folks. Because they were literally saying, you know, school districts were literally buying laptops, Apple laptops, for their kids, and if a blind kid couldn't use it, well, that whole contract was in in jeopardy. And so there was absolutely a business reason for doing it. And Apple, being Apple, made the most of. Except for Phil Schiller and his thirty six seconds, but subsequently Apple made the most of. You know, here's a good thing that we did. Aren't we an awesome company? Even though there is some background that has to do with, you know, we we want to be in a certain market, and the only way to do that is to to do accessibility. But they've, you know, managed I think to internalize the desire to make accessibility as good as it can possibly be. Are there bugs? Are there problems? Are there things we'd like them to do differently? Probably yeah. But they've built a foundation that has actually remain has actually allowed them to grow accessibility in kind of impressive ways, even 10 years on.
0: I really feel like there was a point in which Apple really embraced that, that accessibility. Um, you know, it may have started out as, you know, sort of a business decision, but do you think that once they sort of started, started to see um, the sort of the goodwill building that they they really started to lean into it, and really it be it sort of became a selling feature of Apple products.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and and I think also because of that, they attracted people into their teams who believed in it. So you know, and and a and a corporation differently than a person, but some somewhat the same. If you praise a, if you praise a person. For something they were kind of doing already, they're going to go. Oh, that's a nice thing I did, and and maybe they're going to try and do it more, you know. And so that has benefits for them as a corporation. But I do feel like, and their openness to bringing in people who have disabilities or who are interested in accessibility onto their teams is probably somewhat infectious. Does it infect all areas of Apple equally? Probably not. And I I would love, love, love to sort of know how the accessibility teams operate within Apple and how they work to evangelize and how successful all that stuff is. I don't know the answers to any of those questions, and that would be a great book to be able to write, <laughs> but they, they don't let anybody in their house. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, I, I do feel like they've internalized it, and then they it's, it's a virtuous circle, right, because they've internalized it, and then they've converted that internal feeling into marketing, and then they've realized that because we marketed this thing, we have to make it continue to be excellent because the worst thing in the world that could happen is for somebody to say, well, Android or Microsoft or whoever has got a leg up on you and you're no longer the most accessible device around.
0: Well, and speaking of that, that is very, very much what happened, right? Um, everybody saw what Apple was doing and the success that they were having. And so certainly Google and Microsoft responded and started you know, really pushing the idea of accessibility as well.
1: Yeah, they definitely did. And Microsoft to me is the most fascinating because I, and I've said this a lot, but I just, I admire Microsoft's uh, openness in terms of their roadmaps and their ability to, to talk about what's coming up months before it comes up without sort of being paranoid. And, and they, they do that way better than, than somebody like Apple does, but they've In in terms of their accessibility, they've done that as well. And so it's, it's an interesting, even, you know, whether you think Apple or Microsoft, I guess we're talking about the computer side mostly, but whether you think Apple or Microsoft has better individual accessibility features, Microsoft has done a great job of sort of throwing their arms open and saying to the community, this is what we have. These are some features that are coming later. What do you think of them? Or let me explain how they work to you. And so above and beyond the fact that they have implemented great accessibility, including the aforementioned narrator, which I trashed earlier. (laughs) Uh, uh, They've just done, because of the nature of their culture, they've managed to really tell a good accessibility story that has a lot to do with the features and the roadmap, more so than the sort of warm feels that sometimes Apple relies on.
2: One of the things I wanted to ask um, is... You know, being totally blind myself and a PC user however, having never used a Mac, what is the accessibility like on a Mac? Is it a level playing field when it comes to Windows versus Mac?
1: I don't think I can say that it is. I, I think voiceover is good, and I think if you have a desire to use a Mac or if that's what you have, have become accustomed to using, voiceover is absolutely a tool that you can use on your Mac every day. If you're a Windows user and go to a Mac, you probably will be frustrated. What JAWS and NVDA have are the sort of institutional memory and the large number of users who have tested it and requested changes and features continue to grow. And, ch- you know, what is JAWS at like 20 or 21 or something like, that? I don't know what version it's at, but it's it's double digits for sure. Right. And the, the voiceover tool on the Mac is good, but there are still apps that are not VoiceOver compatible, and you don't have the the scripts that you do in JAWS to sort of overcome incompatibilities. And I don't think you necessarily have the critical mass of users who have made VoiceOver continue to to be be excellent. And I don't VoiceOver on the Mac is kind of in need of some. Uh, attention. It's its not gotten the attention that, that the iOS platform has in general. And I, as a low vision person, I use Zoom and some other um, tools on the Mac to high contrast and that sort of thing. And every time, and Apple, because it's such a visual interface, and this is an issue that we're going to have with the, the current operating system upgrade uh, on the Mac side, uh, be, because it's such a visual interface, every time they sort of change and tweak it as a low vision person, I just sort of my teeth and go, I hope they haven't gone too far with transparencies and bright white windowing and all that kind of stuff. And I haven't uh, uh, put the betas on my Macs uh, yet because I'm kind of busy with iOS, but I, I do feel like the Mac could use some attention in terms of accessibility, but specifically voiceover. I will give them credit, they did put voice control, which was a new feature that came out in iOS last year too. They put that on the Mac. And so I think for people with physical disabilities, the accessibility tools are great. There are a lot of people who make films on the Mac who who use head mounted devices and who use voice control. And so I, I think, and, and who, you know, do really fancy, great work. And so I, I think that that's where the Mac tends to excel is in tools for folks with physical disabilities.
0: So in general, do you feel like developers are more open to the idea of accessibility than 10 years ago because of all of this because it's it's such an important design difference to build in accessibility at the ground level as opposed to thinking about it down the road after the program or the app has already has already been released and then they sort of scramble to sort of build some sort of an add-on accessibility solution to something that's already built do you get the sense that that's beginning that mindset is beginning to change
1: It really depends on the developer, honestly. I mean, there's some that get it, and it's not even based on the size of the developer. It's not based on whether you're a Microsoft or somebody and you have a big contract and you have to be accessible. There are people, there are one-person shops who make incredibly accessible tools and who collaborate with people that they have met online who are, you know, they have beta programs or they have uh, testing programs that include people with disabilities and there's a great and then there are other people and you know I, I I a tale of two twitter clients is one I like to tell. So there's so Twitterific is this great Twitter client from Icon Factory. Their accessibility is phenomenal both from a voiceover point of view and from a low vision point of view. Great job, love them, stand them, we'll support them here and even even though Twitter with their API stuff means that I have to have two Twitter clients on my iPhone, I will use Twitter and Twitterific cuz because they're great. And then you have an app like TweetBot, which a lot of the nerd community in the mainstream world loves. Love, love, love TweetBot. Not hardly accessible at all. It's, it's like half accessible to voiceover and the low vision stuff is terrible. And so I, <laughs> it's funny because like I say, if I'm, if I'm straddling both worlds and I'm, I'm talking to mainstream people, what Twitter client do you use? TweetBot. And I will just sort of casually throw in, well, I can't use that because it's not accessible at all. And they're just, they've not been responsive. Like they literally will not answer emails. So it's, you can't, can you, can you say that a lot of developers get that accessibility can and should be built in from the ground up? Yes. Can you say that others either don't care or are willfully ignorant? That's true as well.
0: Yeah. And I guess that all comes down to like, to be perfectly honest about it is that they just need to learn the business case for having an accessible product.
1: Yeah, and I, I think some people kind of play the the averages and they don't think that there is a business case or they think, you know, if, if you're Tweet, I mean, I, I can't get in the head of TweetBot, but let's try, why not? If you're those guys, you're like, okay, well, Twitterific has the accessibility concession. Why do I need to worry about making my app accessible? Because, you know, four or five blind people might buy it. I mean, they may they may have... They may may sell a few more than that, but they may feel like somebody has already put their stake in the ground. I don't. Again, I don't know if that's the way they think or if they're like, look, it's developer resources that will, because we haven't built it in from the ground up, because we'd essentially have to bolt it on, either we don't think we'd do a good job or we don't think we're going to make enough money from doing it, especially since something like Twitterific is out there and there are plenty of other clients that are even more specific to the interests of people with blindness.
0: Yeah, and that's the really, you know, that's the really important component of this as I feel like, you know, education, especially when it comes to developers, because really the key to all this is just getting that mindset in that it's so much easier to just build in accessibility from the start. And that way, because bolting on a solution usually isn't a really very good solution and it's very costly.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think... uh some of it has to be laid at the feet of Apple because they make tools available. They do presentations at WWDC, but they have not taken the next step of saying, we're going to put an accessibility label on your app in the app store, or we're going to take some sort of punitive action if you're not accessible. I realize that there are potential problems and pitfalls with that, but there, it, it would be interesting to see what would happen if apple provided some sort of value added incentive to the developer so that if i'm in the app store i can sort my apps that have some sort of that have submitted to some sort of voluntary accessibility certification i mean there are all sorts of ways apple could do that
2: Yeah, I think if they started by saying we're not going to take 30 (laughs) percent,
1: it might help. (laughs) Well, there is that, but I I think that's a bigger argument, and they're they're worth $2 trillion now. They're not listening to you and me. No,
2: they're not. (laughs) Yeah, it seems unlikely.
3: Yeah. You no, know,
0: they they definitely aren't answering Ryan's email. You know that, right, Steve? <laughs> yeah, Shelly. Ryan,
3: Ryan's a little burned about this too. Do you, do you actually have any direct connection to the folks at Apple Accessibility? Because if if you can get us a back door in there, uh, <laughs> it will probably make Ryan probably stop bagging on Apple. Oh, the I podcast can
2: so I often. can talk to Shelly after. <laughs>
1: I've had a chance to meet some of them and interview a few of them and, um, yeah, well, I don't know that anybody really has a backdoor.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Fair well, and that's something else, you know, I don't know if we want to touch on it or not, but, you know, assistive technology conferences like CSUN, you know, Microsoft will send a team of people down there and have booths and sessions and hands-on, you know, what what is Apple's representation like?
1: Well, that's what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about Microsoft's approach to the community, because, they, they, yeah, they do that. Apple will come to a CSUN, and maybe they'll do one or two sessions, which are basically reiterations of what we already know. Uh, I, I went to one, one year where it was all about Apple Watch, but it was you know six months after Apple Watch had been released. And sure, it was nice that somebody stood up in front of a... And it was packed, by the way. The room was filled. There were probably, you know, a couple hundred people in that room. But it was just somebody standing up front explaining all the accessibility features of Apple Watch and taking questions. But it wasn't interactive in any way. It wasn't, oh, help us design the next version of voiceover or anything like that. And so, yeah, I think Apple... It's it's lucky that they are as good as they are in terms of the stuff that they produce. Because... And I don't... Again, I... This doesn't have to do culturally with the folks in accessibility at all. Because I and I I don't have the kind of relationship with them where I can go and say, Hey, should you guys be a little more open if they'd let you? I don't <laughs> asking that question. But I it's it's a decision that has been made at it on a, on a big, big level Mm -hmm. at Apple and it's above their pay grade as, as they would say. But yeah, so their participation in a thing like CSUN is, is on that order. I think they might have done some of the summer conventions in that way as well. You're never going to see Apple, you know, have a booth, not that they need it, but uh, (laughs) even so it would, it would be nice if some of those, those hands-on sessions or even a, a number of breakout sessions where maybe you talk about a very narrow topic and you get 100 people or 150 people in there who have a super specific concern, you know, let them chat with an engineer at Apple. That would be swell, but it doesn't seem like that's something that's going to happen.
2: Right.
0: So I'm just curious. I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the about the Apple Watch um, specifically. Um, how how has the accessibility evolved on that device, and how does it sort of currently stand as um a piece of assistive technology
1: that's an interesting question and i'll say that i didn't get my first apple watch until last year because as a low vision person and and somebody who i use voiceover on my devices but i am entirely aware that i have a choice about that and that when i use voiceover it is it's not just for my convenience it's actually easier and it makes it you know less eye strain and all that kind of stuff But when I don't have to use voiceover, I choose not to do so. And I knew that I was gonna be a person for whom speech on a watch was gonna be awkward because I was gonna have to have headphones in all the time and that's AirPods or something like that. And so I don't use voiceover on the watch. So I was reluctant to get it because I didn't feel like there was any way as a low vision person that it could be accessible enough, the type could be big enough, it could be high contrast enough for my needs. And then when uh, I, I bought a Series 4 last year when the Series 5s were new because that's the kind of behind the curve kind of person I am. Uh, but the, <laughs> the operating system update was fine. So, so I, I'm completely up to this as far as that goes. And I did that because the screen finally got big enough and I had spent enough time with other people's Apple Watches to convince myself that there was a use case. I'm not reading my text messages on the watch. I can't do it. I, I guess the short version of it is for some accessibility needs, it is, you, you sort of have to be realistic about what you're going to be able to do on it. And if, you, if, you, if you're me, let me just put it that way. If you're me and you expect to be exchanging text messages solely on your watch, then you're unrealistic. If however, you wanna use it as a fitness device, if you wanna know the weather, if you want to uh, uh, listen to podcasts, that sort of things, then for me, it turns out to be a net positive. I'll also hasten to add two things for my friends who are blind who have Apple Watches, they love, love, love them. As a voiceover device, it works well. As the complications that people have on their watches, the apps that are on the watch are very accessible. You don't hear about, oh, here's an app on the watch that isn't accessible. That's just not even a thing. And I don't know if it's a function of the way the watch development happens or what, but, and in fact, that's just occurring to me now, like on on the Mac or even on the (laughs) iPhone, you always hear about some app that's not accessible, but do you know of any inaccessible Apple Watch apps? I do not.
0: I'm also really curious to know, you know, and being that you sort of have your ear really close to the ground in terms of, of Apple products, because rumors have been swirling around about this, the idea that Apple has coming out soon, we would assume, uh, some sort of a, a head-worn device. What what have you heard?
1: Well, I haven't heard anything from them, of course. Right. Uh, the, the rumors that are the most credible are the ones that where they found, where people who have looking, looked in the code have found some sort of reference to a thing that could be a smart glasses or a smart headset or something like that. I don't think that's prima facie evidence at all. If I had to guess, I would guess it would be toward the end of next year or later. Before we get any kind of head-worn device from Apple, I don't think they want to hurry it at all because of the experience of Google Glass. Right. I think Apple and and this was an issue early on with the Watch too. They really wanted to make a Watch, but they had to answer the question, "What's it for?" And ultimately, and it took them a couple of years after the Watch was released, they were like, "Okay, this is a fitness device. Sure, you can do a lot of other things with the Watch, but the." most compelling case for people is its fitness device. So what's the most compelling case for a head-worn device for somebody in the mainstream world, which, by the way, is entirely different than the case for somebody in the accessibility world?
0: Right. Very true. Um, I mean, I guess part of the sort of the excitement for us and, and sort of a, a royal us in terms of people in the community um, is, is that the, the the glasses, some sort of a, a head-worn device would be a really great um, assistive technology platform to, to build some really great uh, accessibility into and and have it really be able to be used as some, some things like a mobility aid. Um, And we're, we're sort of seeing movement in that with um, Google glass um, because there, there are developers out there that are actively and have actively developed products using that device um, as mobility aids and, and AT solutions. Um, but I really feel like you're absolutely right. That, that, that mainstream device that really gets people excited that you really need to drive the idea of a, of a head worn device forward just hasn't appeared yet. And I feel like maybe that's what Apple is waiting for. They want to, they, they want to strike at the right time. Because they know that, I I think they know that that could very well really propel things forward, um, much like the the smartphone did initially.
1: Yeah, if it's done right, it totally could. And, And so I feel like even if the first version, you know, like the first Apple Watch was not perfect and wasn't right for a lot of people, it had enough of the rudiments there that, it wasn't a piece of junk. People bought it and, and nor was it embarrassing to them in the way that Google Glass was. And I remember when Google Glass came out, aside from whatever reactions I might've had just as a person that like most people sort of were critical of Google Glass in general, yeah. but I thought it was sort of a swipe against accessibility because I didn't see any way that the way they described Google Glass could either be accessible or that it provided any benefit to us. Because if you don't use the screen in your eyes what would be the advantage of having smart glasses? And oh, by the way, there was no accessibility provided for at all. But when I heard that Apple might be doing something like this, it wasn't even a question. Well, clearly they're gonna be accessible. And clearly Apple knows what people use their phones for. I mean, one of the revolutionary things that the iPhone allowed people to do was create accessibility focused navigation apps. And that is absolutely going to be a huge use case for glasses for for accessibility. And as as sort of curmudgeonly as I can be about sort of new tech and buying new tech just because it's cool instead of because it's functional, I've been a I've been real bullish on on glasses. I can't wait for them because I have as I say I don't know that the accessibility will be perfect or that the glasses themselves will be perfect on the first version, but because it's Apple, I'm like bring it on and let me see because somebody is going to be working on navigation apps and somebody is going to be able to utilize the built-in accessibility that they provide. And so it's going to be a step forward as far as we, or we're concerned.
0: Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, and, you know, in a weird way, like, and maybe this is just my lack of imagination, but I think the use case scenario for that platform is much stronger for a, a piece of uh, assistive technology than it is for a mainstream device.
1: See, I have to too, which is why I worry about when we're gonna get the mainstream device. Because I almost want them to say, could you just give us a bunch of your prototypes? We'll test them for you for nothing. If somebody will just write us some nice navigation apps and we'll tell you how they work as accessibility devices. Because the smartphone, if you think about it, is is kind of awkward as a navigation device. Sure, you can use Uh, AirPods and with voiceover, you, you, well, you don't have, you obviously you don't have to look at the screen, but often you have to touch the phone and swipe and double tap and all that kind of stuff. And it, it is. And for a low vision person, it's super awkward because I'm trying to use my eyes and it's bright outside and I'm two inches from the phone. So a more natural navigation device would be a pair of glasses.
0: So let me, let me spin off into sort of a a side topic then. So what, what kind of emerging technology has really got you as excited as a user?
1: I guess I'm still, well, I, I don't know. We just talked about glasses for, for 10 minutes. So I guess that <laughs> that's the most obvious one and the one that is most different from what we have right now. Um, I think in terms of uh, offshoots from what we already have, I think we're getting, you know, more, we're getting more sophisticated, Even, you know, something as simple and something we've been doing for years, the scanning apps are getting better. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like you, you have something like Voice Dream Scanner or um, uh, Voice Stream Scanner, I guess I just stick stick to that one, but you know, ha- we didn't think there could be like better scanning apps, but all of a sudden there are. And then there are mainstream, like the the Apple, the, uh, uh, the app clips thing that Apple has included. I think that's a cool accessibility thing for us because we can, you know, point our phone at something and get authenticated or get information in a more sophisticated way than you can with a QR code. Maybe that's not even emerging technology. Maybe that's just something cool that is an add-on to what we already have. But I think those are I I love features that are sort of accidental accessibility benefits because we we hear about them and we, we think about them in a different way than they were intended. But we're like, oh, I can totally use that.
0: Well, and I think that that's also one of the exciting things that really changed with the advent of the smartphone, too, is the advent of the app. And that now you can have, like, really small developers. Like you can have, like, three or four, you know, a team of three or four people who have this idea for, for an app that they can just go out and they can develop and they can release. And we've seen a lot of really incredibly useful, um, you know, AT apps that you know are just from really small developers that are that are really super
3: innovative.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And and even ways of implementing those apps, you know, in combination with the, the smartphone, we now have like the, the phone enabled cane, which may or may not be I, I haven't used that device, the WeWalk device, uh, other than to see as it as a demo. But even if that isn't the specific device that like takes over the market, I love the idea that you use your smartphone and your app to make another device that you use every day more intelligent.
0: What was your impression of CSUN this year?
1: Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course it was the, as I tell everybody, that was the week of the pandemic and I was just all caught up in the drama of would I don't know if you guys went, did y'all go? No. No. okay. I, See, was, I, I was
3: supposed to go. I was yeah.
1: caught up in the drama of should I, or shouldn't I go? And I was following the hashtag for weeks, waiting for them to cancel it. And I had, commitments of projects to do at CSUN and was looking forward to them. And I had plane tickets and all that kind of stuff. And I and I went and it was just so, people have criticized them. I'm just talking about like CSUN at, in terms of the organization of it and the pandemic thing first. And then I'll sort of talk about technology a little bit. Sure. People criticized CSUN for a long time on a number of fronts, which aren't all that relevant, except to say that their response to the pandemic sort of confirmed some of people's worst impressions, because they seemed sort of tone deaf, and they also just seemed a little befuddled about how to respond to it. You have a bunch of people, some of whom are blind, who touch things, who are coming to this event, and you're providing them minimal guidance about how, other than a document that was published on a website, uh, minimal guidance as far as how to navigate this event and how to, you know, keep your Hand sanitized where the sanitization stations are. And then you put food buffets in the middle of the uh, exhibit (laughs) hall. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was just like unforced errors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I went and I, you know, did my bit. And uh, (laughs) I remember the, I I arrived that, this is all like burned into my memory. I arrived (laughs) Tuesday night and I woke up in my hotel room Wednesday morning to coronavirus has been declared a pandemic. Welcome to California. Uh, <laughs> so there I am, and I had I, the joke I had made at my day job the week before was, "Well, I'm going to take my laptop with me in case I get stuck in California and can't get home," and that didn't happen, but it almost did. Wow. Hmm. And, <laughs> so that was I just felt like it was ill advised that it that it happened, and yeah. so as a consequence, like so many people didn't go, yeah. And the 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 technology I saw and the people I talked to, and I got to see the the uh, Google Glass. Uh, the the IRO equipped uh, those Google Google Glass, which was fun, uh, and that was great. And I saw a bunch of headsets uh, based on VR headsets with uh, for for low vision folks. I saw I saw all this, I saw the We Walk cane. I saw a bunch of stuff that was great, but it really felt like it was a shadow of what it otherwise would have been. We were already in sort of a tough economy for assistive technology, and so. It was kind of a bummer. I, I enjoyed it as best I could, uh, but it was it's it's unfortunate that it had to happen, and I, I feel like it and I didn't go to the conference this year. I hadn't planned to anyway. I didn't have I didn't have that expensive ticket. Uh, and in fact, like the next time I go, because I have some specific interests in accessible tech that I am not an expert in, I probably will buy a conference ticket, and I will be curious to see how it changes from here on out.
3: Yeah, I was supposed to go to to CSUN this year as well and I, I was doing the same as you. I was watching the uh the hashtags and waiting for them to cancel it. And then uh the week of I came down with a cold, couldn't go.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, maybe maybe you we're lucky that way, I don't know, but and I mean, I had like all sorts of weird stuff with like flying out and you know, going to, to try, trying to be as healthy as I possibly could and trying to touch anything and I don't know. It was uh it was it was unfortunate.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and it's funny before, before we turned the mics on, we were just talking too about how um, ever since COVID, like it really, it's like things really have seemed to slow down. There doesn't seem to be much, there, there doesn't seem to be many announcements. Nothing really new is really coming out. And, and, you know, I, it's probably to be expected given, you know, given the fact that we are in a pandemic, Um But yeah, there just really isn't too much to talk about these days.
1: Well, there was consolidation in the industry anyway. And so it was, I mean, people were just like, well, who is, who is, who's going to get bought up next? (laughs) The biggest thing that anybody was talking about even kind of before the pandemic. And, and the thing is, and this is sort of, I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to, to take stock of it. But what we were talking about before where mainstream technology is becoming better at accessibility and mainstream technology is allowing us to do things from an accessibility perspective that we never could before. Well, that can't help but cannibalize the AT-specific industry, right? So how do you make money if you're you know, a freedom scientific or, a, or anybody mm-hmm. who's just making products aimed at the accessibility market where yeah. those products are already super high-priced? So yep. if somebody can buy an iPhone and do something that an electronic magnifier could do instead, they're going to buy an iPhone or they're going to buy an iPad or an Android device.
0: Sure, and I, I think that you know screen readers specifically are probably going to be the first to, and really have been the first to fall victim of of that very thing. Um, you know, with the with the built-in screen reading capabilities of devices getting better and better and being improved on. The need for something like a jaws um, is, you know it's it's diminishing
1: yeah. and and again, with Microsoft, they've really bumped up narrator. I don't think it's their intention to destroy Jaws, but I do think they realized that what they had was an ineffectual screen reading product, and now even if you use a JAWS, you can use Narrator to install your device, you can use Narrator to troubleshoot your device, you can use Narrator for moderate screen reader tasks and not, you know, spend a thousand dollars, and they've they've also done that in, in low vision. Windows has always been, if, if you think of low vision as a spectrum where not everybody uses low vision, not anybody uses the, is low vision in the same way as any other person, it's not like turn the screen reader off or turn it on, there's like how much contrast do I use or what color background do I like? If you think of low vision as a spectrum, Microsoft actually does a better job than Apple because they've always provided the ability for you to super customize your system, and that's only improved. And so that means I don't have to necessarily buy Zoom text or some other tool that's specifically designed to uh, improve my low vision access.
0: So maybe just to, to start to cap off the conversation, because, you know, we've, we've, we've kept you uh... A while now. And I feel like we could probably talk to you
2: for like another three hours. Um,
1: <laughs> it's hot in here. Let's not do that, okay?
2: <laughs> You're not still recording in a closet, are you?
1: It's hot. I am recording. It. Well, it's a former air conditioner closet, so there's not clothes in it. But but it, it does have like sound treatment on the wall. And it's it's 100 degrees here in Texas. So All right? Right. Yeah. you guys in Canada wouldn't know anything about that, would you?
0: <laughs> no, not, not a lot, no. Thankfully. Well, listen, just maybe, just because you've been in the industry for so long, I'm just always curious to ask this question to to people, you know, like us that have that have been around for so long. What's your general take on the sort of the current state of accessibility in general? Are we in a really great place, or do we still kind of have a way to, ways to go?
1: I feel like the kind of accessibility we've been talking about on devices and in operating systems is continuing to improve a pace, and they, it, it's, it's a really, it's not perfect, but it's really good, and people, most people can pick up a smartphone, and they have a choice. They can pick up an Android device or an Apple device, they can choose the smartphone they want, and they can use it accessibly. When it comes to things like web accessibility, I think there's still a lot of issues because we're we're online all the time, right? We can use our phones, but if we're, or, or our computers, but if the website that we want to use is only partially accessible or isn't accessible, I mean, we're still having cases like the Domino's case where mm-hmm. Domino's is like, we're not accessible and you can't make us be accessible. And that's a problem, not of technology, but of will. And there's all this sort of stigma around, uh, trolls trying to get people to cough up money for lack of web accessibility, and that gives a bad reputation to those of us who are like, but wait a minute, Target should be accessible. Well, that's a bad choice because they are. Uh, This department store, that drug store, that doctor's office website should be accessible. Why isn't it? And then you say that, and then somebody who is concerned about uh, litigation is like, well, you're you're just trolling. Why, why does this specific site have to be accessible to you? And so I worry more about that because you're not talking about convincing developers to build accessibility into their apps from the ground up. You're talking about hundreds and thousands of people who run websites, who have varying degrees of interest in accessibility, and who on some level think to themselves, well, when is a blind person ever going to come to my website? And if they are, maybe it's just that one. So why should I take the trouble to become accessible?
3: We were, we were stunned at Domino's response to that. They're,
1: They're making a specific point, right? They're saying, they're saying, try us. We don't think that this law should apply to us. And it's, it's, it's stunning. And it's, it's a specific attempt to basically say, we don't have to you can't make us and yeah. it's 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 terrible
3: yeah, yeah and but but moreover they they spent a, an untold amount of money to take that to the supreme yep. court when they could have done the right thing in the beginning and saved themselves a ton of money exactly boot. insanity yep
0: yeah it, it really uh, you, you, oh geez we could yeah we could definitely do another you know, three-hour conversation about digital accessibility from <laughs> 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 Uh, hey, listen, where the heck can people find you online if they want to know all about you or, and your work?
1: So my website is Brisbane.net, B-R-I-S-B-I-N.net. You can find on there uh, my book. You can, iOS Access for All, which is what we've been talking about. You can find the various podcasts I do, Parallel and Lions Towers and Shields and all the podcasts I show up on from time to time, (laughs) as well as links to my day job. And then if you just want to harass me on Twitter, and I don't mean harass, I mean be friendly, (laughs) uh, you can find me at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y.
0: Wonderful. Shelly, please come back and talk to us again. Uh, It's been an absolute delight.
1: It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you so much.
0: I'm glad it's not 100 degrees yeah
3: <laughs> we got close we got close we uh oh yes that's, uh, that's 37 and we got up to what 33 the other mm-hmm.
0: day yeah so that's what it that would be in the high that would be in like in the 80s yeah uh, i think like I high 70s maybe
2: yeah i think like 33 34 is like 75 degrees Close to 80. God,
0: I can I could. I literally can't imagine 100 degrees. Oh, 91.4 no. is
3: 33.
2: Oh, is but it? You,
3: was
0: 136 in Death Valley?
2: Yeah, I oh, saw no, that the fancy. other day. it's like 54 degrees Celsius or something.
0: What the hell? Yeah, like, it's insanity. What's that even like?
2: <laughs> it's like hell. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so it's called Death Valley.
0: True enough. Oh wow, wow. That was so fun. I love geeking out about accessibility. (laughs) Doing this podcast. I could just talk. I could just talk for hours. Excellent. Well, let's keep it up. Yeah, I hate. I'm sorry. I feel like I hogged that interview. No, it was perfect. Well, there you go. I've always got something to say. (laughs) Well, listen, that's gone. That went on a little long. So we better get right
2: to the show for some people. That's right. Well, let's let's give a. Let's do are it. We,
3: uh, are cow- we doing a draw? Are we doing a draw? We're doing a draw. Doing a roll. Let me see I, you do a roll. I got an independent third party here who can do the draw for me, too.
0: Okay, perfect. But Ryan, give me give me a cow. I want to hear a cow roll. I
2: can't. I've only got one drumstick.
3: All right. All right so, draw number one is going to be for a cowbell, and the winner is Doug and Judy Murray.
2: Woo-hoo! Doug and- Murray.
3: Doug and Judy Murray, you got yourselves a cowbell coming.
2: All righty. Okay.
3: Yeah, let's do one more cowbell. Okay. All right, one more cowbell. I think I'm a jitter. All <laughs> right. We have a longtime listener and friend, Shan Noise. Shan, Shan you're getting a cowbell.
0: We have a cowbell.
3: And the final draw for the jersey goes to Brian Bibo.
0: Brian. Hey. Yeah. Another long-time listener and friend of the show. Indeed. Congratulations friend. to everybody. Well, it pays to be
2: friends of the show. You get stuff. That's right.
3: Yeah. So now all we've got to do is figure out where these folks live so we can send them stuff.
2: I have the Doug and Judy's address. Do you? Okay. Yeah. That's one down. We'll so email uh, me, email me we'll the winners out,
0: yeah. and all. Do, yeah, do you have Brian's uh,
2: info? Yeah. Just email me who won what and I'll reach out to them.
0: Cool. Well, congratulations.
2: Absolutely.
0: You are days away from Minnow (laughs) Stank.
2: And we have one jersey left. We have the number one flurry jersey. So That's
3: right. And uh, even if you've won before, you can pitch your name into the ring for that one if you want to. That's right. So just email cowbell
0: at atbanter.com and say, hey, I want a jersey that's right
3: give me a jersey hockey jersey
0: you'll be entered in
3: the coveted number one flurry jersey
0: damn i didn't realize he was number one i'm number one i'm number one interesting
2: that's right don't forget it (laughs) interesting
0: um all right well anything else to say about that guys
2: nope i don't think so
0: not a sausage all right well you know what hey ryan
2: rob where
0: can people
2: find us they can find us online at atbanter.com
0: they can also drop us a line if they so desire and why would they want to drop us a line well maybe they want to pitch maybe a- they want to win
3: a hockey jersey or a cowbell
0: maybe they want to pitch an idea maybe they want to suggest a guest maybe they would like to be a guest on the show
3: maybe they think we're a bunch of dumb jerks and they just wanted to tell us in person
0: that's right we'll even take that that's right there's no judgment here they can drop us a line at cowbell at atbanter.com where else can they find us
3: Oh, well, it can also find us on the social medias. We're on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram, although we don't do bugger all on Instagram. But <laughs> we're there. Uh, and uh, yeah, you could probably uh, hook up with us through LinkedIn too, except I don't think we have an AT Batcher specific. No. LinkedIn. We don't need one. No, probably not. But I have one.
2: And I have so, one.
3: You, know, you can find me.
0: Uh, that's right. Whoa, wow. That was an epic show. I feel like we've we've spanned decades. We've talked about Apple up the wazoo. We did some good work today, boys.
2: Awesome, glad to hear it.
0: Excellent. Well, I mean, actually, I guess Jelly did most of the, the heavy heavy
2: lifting. That's right. Let's prepare well, it for help next. Helps when you have a professional on board, right? <sighs> Absolutely, tr- so true.
0: Uh, all right. Well, I think that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks everybody for listening in. Big thanks to Shelley Brisbane for joining us and we will see everybody
3: next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com.